What's up, everyone? This is Ellis Hammond, and you're listening to the Future of Real Estate podcast. This is the show for real estate investors who want to embrace the future in order to prepare and profit for what's coming next. Let's get this show kicked off. Joseph Biasi is a senior consultant with CoStar Portfolio Strategy in Boston. If you don't know what CoStar is, it is one of the largest, if not the largest, data provider in the country world for commercial real estate. And we have an awesome conversation with Joseph about what he's seeing from the data around all asset cl classes, including multifamily, self-storage, retail, office. And we really kind of dive into what he sees are the trends, the things to know as an investor, both passive and active about what to do with your portfolio in 2022. I think you're going to really, really love this conversation. I know I did. So let's make sure we get into it now. Joe, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Good. How are you? Guys, we have a very, very special guest on this uh, on this show. I actually got my business partner with me, Keith, too. Keith, how are we doing? Doing well, man. How about yourself? Good, good. Glad to have you on here. Uh, guys, we have Joseph Biasi. He's a senior consultant with CoStar uh, Portfolio Strategy in Boston. Uh, if you don't know what CoStar is, uh, then you may not be in the world of commercial real estate. Uh, it's a data provider, but much more than that, access to just a wealth of information around um, around our industry. And Joe gets to kind of sit in the driver's seat of a lot of that, a, a lot of that information. And really excited to have him on and just kind of talk about the future of real estate. Literally, like, what should we as active passive investors know in terms of what the data is telling us around inflation, cap rates, markets? Uh, multi-family and other asset classes and so uh joe i know you got to hit us with a disclaimer man let's get that out the way so we can we can make some bold predictions here <laughs> yeah absolutely all right so just just for uh your listeners benefit you know, some information discussed today by may by its nature be my personal or subjective opinion and not necessarily reflect the views of co-star group any forward-looking statements are believed to be based on reasonable assumptions but are subject to change and not necessarily comprehensive given the format most importantly, nothing said during this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, accounting, or legal advice, or as a promotion of the advisability of any particular investment. Just right off the top. How many, uh, how many, how many interviews did you do Rolls before CoStar was like, uh, hey, hey, man, it's time for you to start reading a disclaimer. <laughs> I got, uh, they, they were pretty quick on it. I, I sent, I sent an email, and they were like, you know, just in case. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, look, do, do me a favor. I, I'm sure I didn't do justice to um, really what CoStar is and your role is. So can we start there before we kind of jump into predictions about kind of like what who you actually are, like what CoStar is and does um, and kind of the access of information that you have in terms of commercial real estate? Sure. So CoStar is this uh, enterprise uh, suite of data we have, uh, you know, at the building level everything from rents, occupancy, square footage. Uh, we, uh, you know, we have market analytics that we build on top of that. Uh, but at our core, we are a data company that provides, you know, comprehensive data. Um, that, uh, we have tenants, for example, uh, for multifamily, uh, industrial, retail, uh, office, uh, hotel, and some of, the, some of the property types in between. Um, and my job in particular is I'm a consultant. So I sit on top of all of that data and get to have fun with it, essentially. We have, uh, I serve a, a group of clients. They get to ask questions uh, that you wouldn't necessarily find uh, within the normal CoStar universe of analysis. Uh, on, and we try to answer those questions to the best of our ability. Additionally, 
uh, we, we put out our own research using uh, leveraging that database and any kind of knowledge or trends that we have that we've seen to uh, publish white papers and research notes. Um, probably about every week or every other week we have a new research note coming out on some, everything from you know the viability uh, or the uh, of older uh, industrial assets to uh, what we expect for multifamily going forward as uh, work from home uh, begins begins to become that new normal. Yeah, I can't wait to get in some of this. We, I mean, CoStar has been a huge benefit to us and our firm, right, as we're trying to make decisions around markets and assets and having information and access to that data and knowledge is key when it comes to real estate investing, right? So let's let's do our own uh, set of predictions real quick. Now that we've read the disclaimer, we can kind of get into this. You know, I'm sure you've heard or at least seen that, that Dr. Peter Linneman recording with Walker and Dunlap is kind of I think kind of gone, I don't want to say viral, but it's definitely gotten traction and they make some pretty bold predictions in the front. So let's do our own, man. You know, that, what does Dr. Lineman know, right? Like, <laughs> let's let's see what Joseph Biasi knows. Because the last time I heard you and the last time I listened to one of your episodes was actually Q2 of 2021. So a lot has transpired uh, since then. Yes. <laughs> so interest uh, interest rates, I'm sure you, you hear this, you get this question a lot. Where are they going? Uh, where where will interest rates go? Um, you know, before before twenty twenty two ends. I mean, you got to start with the Fed funds rate. Pretty clear at this point, they're going up. It's the Fed has been pretty become pretty hawkish, very very hawkish in the last few meetings. They they're projecting they're going to have three to four rate hikes per by the end of this year. To be honest with you, the market is projecting more like five rate hikes this year, and I would trust the market over the Fed in terms of uh, where rate hikes are going. The market is ahead of the Fed pretty much all the time when it comes to uh, those types of projections. Explain uh, what you mean by the market versus the Fed. Yeah, so the the Fed uh, puts out its own projections. They put out uh, called the dot plot, and it's just a basic uh, projection of where they think interest rates will go. They also uh, the Fed funds rate. They also project where they think inflation will go and unemployment. Market there's uh, there's a betting market set up effectively that uh, tries to project out where the market kind of sees the bond market see interest rates heading. It's very important as a bond investor to know where those short-term rates are going. And the market is saying, you know, three to four is good, but we really think it'll be five. We think that the Fed's going to do more to control inflation. Now, if you look, you know, kind of on the longer end of that yield curve, typically when you raise, uh, you raise the short end, you also uh, see increases in the long end, that they're not, it's not one-to-one. You typically, when the Fed raises rates, you get a flattening of that yield curve. Uh, and you know, a really back the hand, uh, back of the envelope calculation, I would say is about for every 100 basis points, the Fed raises rates, you would expect 10 year treasury to go up by about 20, 30 basis points. That might be different this time around, and we can get into why that might be. But I, I do expect that the 10 year treasury should begin to kind of march up a little bit, not mm-hmm. not maybe 100, 125 basis points like the, the short end will go. But certainly the trajectory seems to be at least somewhat upwards. And five times, 25 basis points per time, or do you think it, it could fluctuate less or more than that? Uh, about 25 basis points. They're going to be careful raising rates. Look, they got a little burned going a little too high in 2018. Uh, they're going to do 25 basis points. We're coming off of really unprecedented, an unprecedented pandemic. We're coming off of an unprecedented amount of fiscal support. And they, I, they're not entirely unconvinced that this isn't just leftover uh, spending. This inflation is leftover spending from the stimulus. Unless they really see a huge spike in inflation that that means that they need to push it up faster. 
it's going to be those 25 basis point increases. Traditionally, it's been said that cap rates are tied to interest rates. Where do you see cap rates going then if you if you predict interest rates going up at least five times, maybe over 100 basis points to do the math there, then where are cap rates at? Uh, let's just call for some of the larger, you know, main main asset classes, multifamily, self-storage, industrial. Where do you see cap rates going? Um, over yeah, I, sh- I should say it's... Uh... 100, 100 basis point move in the Fed is about a 20 to 30 basis point move in the 10-year. Mm-hmm. So I'm only expecting not a huge increase in the 10-year, maybe 20, 30, 40 uh, basis point increase based okay. on that. Um, I would say for cap rates, we still we expect them to be flat. And the reason we expect them to be flat is one, the economy is still doing quite well. We have over 6% GDP growth. And unless inflation really begins to eat into uh, some of that economic growth, uh, we think that that should continue. Uh, and there's also a ton of money moving into real estate, which should push down cap rates, even if there is some upward pressure as spreads compress. But on the other end, of, uh, on the other end, you are seeing a lot of uh, you are seeing quite low cap rates, right? You are seeing that I think the NACREF cap rate for multifamily, for example, is two two to three percent. Um, right. So some of that, like really that uh, institutional investor quality stuff, is really going for quite low. It depends on where you're talking about to some degree. If you're talking about a San Francisco or New York. You know, you would anticipate that uh, cap rates would remain flat or maybe even push up a little bit, depending on where work from home goes for, for office or uh, multifamily, uh, where if you're talking about secondary and tertiary markets, they have higher yields. They have, they have those higher cap rates that can come in a little bit further um, as, the, as more and more uh, as the demographic shift kind of benefits them, especially, you know, think about places like Charlotte or Raleigh or Austin, for example. Yeah, use the, the term stay at home. I think we're all familiar with that term now with COVID. We've heard it enough to understand what it means. Funny, like, do we just, we kind of created a new term, right? Like, um, we just kind of, you know, that makes sense now. It's funny that we all know what that means. If you'd have said that two years ago, you'd be like, why are you, why are you being so, why are you staying at home? <laughs> you know, like, um, it feels so normal now. What, what is that? Are you track that? And do you predict that to grow or to lessen over the next 12 to 24 months? That's, that's a great question. It, it is strange that this is like, this is it's such a shift from two years ago where work from home was this thing for a very small subset of workers. But the anticipation is that we should still see workers come back. Look, I think it's extremely safe to say that it's never going to be like it was in 2019, that we have seen some level of a permanent shift where workers are just going to be high. There is going to be that demand for hybrid work, especially with the labor market being as tight as it is. You know, workers have a lot of power. That being said, over the next 12 to 24 months, as we continue to kind of figure out where we are in the pandemic and kind of settle into this new world that we're, we're looking at, right, um, we should see some people return back to the office. Once again, not at the level we were seeing in 2019. Uh, I saw a projection that, you know, uh, we should see like 50 to 60 percent by the end of this year. Whereas, you know, if you look at Castle Systems right now, I believe it's in the 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, here, here's what's interesting. When you're talking about interest rates maybe going up, cap rates continue to compress. I mean, I, I think this is where it gets really, like we're looking at Dallas right now. And it's interesting, we look at CoStar, and I'd love to hear your input on this because CoStar would say cap rate in Dallas right now. What, or what, what would you say a cap rate in Dallas is right now? Just from the data, where would you say it's assets are trading for multifamily? For multifamily, uh, you know, I I don't know off the top of my head, frankly. Like, I don't I don't have uh, sure. necessarily that information from you. I'd imagine, you know, of a, a four cap. Yeah, cap. well, so I think that's what CoStar has at four and a half, right, Keith? Yeah, it's about four and a half to four point seven five. 
Right, but our offers are getting rejected because they're three caps. So mm. <laughs> I, I'm I'm curious, Joseph, are Joe like where's the like where like it doesn't it's not equal like it's not you know like I want to be a four and a half cap, but the market right now is is really demanding a three. I mean, literally low threes. Is it just because CoStar is maybe behind that market move so fast? And then where do you see that going? Like from I mean, even the is you're working with some of these larger firms who are trying to buy in markets like Dallas make sense of a three cap in Dallas, right? If interest rates continue to rise, I would love to hear your, your input on that. Yeah, that's a great question. So for, for CoStar data, CoStar covers the full universe of multifamily assets. So that mm -hmm. includes some of those really small assets that could add up. And that's why you see a high, typically a higher cap rate on CoStar than you would see in uh, like NACRI, for example, uh, which covers more of an you know, institutional assets because it's just looking at funds, right? As for how to make sense of a three cap, you should think about what real estate offers in terms of in an inflationary environment, right? Because you, you're comparing it against other assets that you might invest in. Stocks don't look great in a rising interest rate environment. It's particularly after years of quantitative easing. And frankly, we're probably going to see quantitative tightening. You know, bond market has been on a, what, 30 or 40 year rally at this point uh, and are near zero interest rates or close to it, right? I mean, what, for 10 years at one six, one seven. Uh, so while you do see those cap rate spreads coming in a little bit, and maybe that does take away some of that attractiveness, they're still quite high compared to other fixed income assets uh, across the board. And then on top of that, you get the, these valuation gains, these real valuation gains in an inflationary environment. And you get the, uh, the NOI growth in an inflationary environment that you don't get in fixed, uh, as, uh, fixed income assets. So if you think about a multifamily, which does a fantastic job, of tracking with rent. At least if you follow, look at NACREF, if you deflate NOI uh, per square foot, um, you would find that uh, for the most part, NOI tracks very closely with inflation. That, uh, and it, it makes it a very good method of hedging against inflation. Wasn't that important the last 30 years or so when we've seen you know, that one to 2% inflation, that nice steady inflation. But now that we're at this 7.1%, 7 it's a little bit more important. Uh, you can, multifamily is good because you can adjust rents usually every year as the lease terms go. You can uh, make sure you're tracking and getting real value out of that. Fixed income assets, if you get a 10-year uh, bond, you have a 10-year yield. And the value of that payment goes down every year, right? The real value of that uh, payment goes down every year. What do you see, or, or maybe you don't, I'm curious in terms of uh, factoring in inflation into rent growth, is there a, a I mean, are you seeing something that we've kind of, I, don't know, I guess being a younger younger investor, it's not something that I've kind of had to consider or maybe haven't considered, you know, put factoring inflation into our, our rent growth. What do you recommend there? What do you see other, uh, other larger firms doing in terms of, you know, making sure as you're thinking about underwriting that inflation is factored into that? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I actually, I came from a brokerage background, so I did do some brokerage. Uh, as a researcher, but uh, you know, uh, in office, you, you, you're in a little bit of a disadvantage now because you have a demand problem. You can't push mm -hmm. rents the way maybe in multifamily you can. You, you, you should start to see more escalations that are maybe a little bit more based on inflation escalations as opposed to you know, the typical 2% or 50, 50 cent uh, rent escalations. If you're thinking about multifamily, frankly, for the most part, you've been able to push rents and we've seen rents push way past inflation, right? I, I mean, even in, uh, we're up here in Boston, which is one of those metro, it's doing well for most compared to most gateway metros, but it's not, you know, uh, the South. And they're still pushing rents, you know, 10, 15%, which is, which means you're getting real return 
If you look at NACREF NOI, you would see that uh, multifamily returns took a hit. The real, real returns took a hit, but they're basically back to where they were pre-pandemic. So we've seen uh, investors being able to push rent, and that's the trick, right, is they hedge inflation well, right, uh, but they hedge inflation well because there's demand. You can't mm-hmm. push rents if you don't have the demand to push rents. Right. So it, it still matters, you know, it, where we're talking about, what property type we're talking about. If we're talking yeah. about a retail asset or an af- office asset, you're going to struggle to kind of keep up with inflation. Whereas if you're talking about industrial, certainly, and uh, apartment the last year in particular, yeah. uh, you've been able to uh, even push real rents depending on the asset type. If you're a suburban, you know, garden apartment owner, which, you know, that's great. I, I don't think there's a lot of those at this point. It's very hard to get those assets. Um, you're doing you're doing quite well. <laughs> um, I want to ask you, and then I'm gonna push over to Keith for a question. But you you know, talking about rent growth and population growth in terms of kind of migration. You know, I live here in San Diego, and mm-hmm. there's been a, there has been a lot of talk already of people moving from California to. Phoenix, we see it in Dallas and Austin and the Carolinas, right across the Sun Belt. And it, I mean, it's happened. I'm, my question is, do you see it continue to happening? Like, will like, are, are we just in the beginning of this migration? Like, what are the what is the data telling us in terms of migration still from the Northeast, California to kind of the Sun Belt market, you know, in 2022 and 2023? Have we seen the worst of it? Or is more coming in because that has, of course, clearly a massive impact on demand, as you say, and ultimately rents going up and OI going up in multifamily. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great question. You know, it was funny. I was looking at the New York Comptroller's report on migration, and they they <laughs> they, they presented this like it was good news, which is that they were losing the same amount of people they were losing in 2019 again, as opposed to how bad it was in 2020. So <laughs> I think that says a lot about what, uh, what is happening in some of these major, more expensive metros, which is, look, it was happening before the pandemic. We were already seeing to some degree, you know, we were already seeing Phoenix do quite well, maybe certainly not to what we've seen the last two years, but um, Phoenix doing quite well. And, you know, especially those California markets, California, and I don't need to tell you this, but California housing is particularly tricky. Uh, it's just, a, it's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of rent control and all these other things that makes development and owning and buying, for example, or living in quite difficult. Um, my expectation is, yeah, uh, that you should, as long as those metros present a cheaper option. Yes, but as we you get that convergence, right, you get some of that Southern convergence with those tier one markets that you typically think of, you know, the San Francisco's of the world, the New York's of the world's uh, world, uh, they're going to look less and less attractive, right? It's it's the same thing with uh, you know the those uh, those cap rate spreads coming in as they it's going to look less attractive. There's reasons to move to Austin still, but even Austin's getting up there; yeah. it's getting pricey. Yeah. Um, and you started to hear kind of that shift in tone about Austin already, right? It's still not San Francisco prices, despite the fact San Francisco's come down so much and Austin's come up so much. But you're starting to hear that because at the end of the day, where are those major companies? Where are those major universities that companies want to go to? There's still Stanford, Stanford's still in San Francisco. You know, uh, Harvard, uh, BU, uh, MIT are still in, in Boston. You, and companies still want to be near those, those labor pools. At, at the end of the day, if you're, trying, if you're moving, companies will move for, uh, for, for labor, but they'll also uh, they'll move for fresh new labor. And that's where 
some of those top end universities are. That's why you've seen like in Austin do so well. Those those mm -hmm. schools in Austin are no joke. Um, but it's I, a really good you, point. And that it might, obviously takes a, a lot longer for a university to kind of build up its prestige. That's not going to happen as quickly as the population shift or the job shift necessarily. So that's a good thing to trend, but that would have to be over a long time duration, I imagine. Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, it's the uh, coming from, I'll use a local example from Boston. You know, we have Kendall Square here, which has exploded. I, I, if, uh, any, any of your listeners uh, do anything with office and biotech in particular, uh, you know, it's been, uh, you, you have rents in the tr uh, above triple digits, triple net since 2016, 2017. And uh, vacancies with, you know, a 10,000 square foot vacancy, right? <laughs> vacancy uh, block, and that's it. And it's just because there's the pure amount of talent, those agglomeration economies, they matter for, for companies. And we, we saw examples of companies trying to move out to like Waltham, for example, to some of these, uh, you know, outlying areas, and they've struggled, you know, they've struggled to bring in the talent that they needed. Right. So it's, it's this balancing act. And at the end of the day, it takes a very, very long time to build up some of those clusters. Austin's done a great job. Raleigh's another one that's actually done a fantastic job kind of bringing in talent. Um, but it's not, it's not everywhere. Not everywhere is going to be able to do that. Yeah. So I actually wanted to circle back to a point we discussed a little bit earlier on cap rates and interest rates and the correlation there. So uh, Ellis had mentioned Dr. Lineman's re recent report, and he revealed a very interesting fact that uh, cap rates and interest rates don't really seem to be as correlated or interrelated as we multifamily syndicators in particular fear or, or assume that they are. And the example that he brought up was back in 2007, 2008 timeframe, the last peak in multifamily, you saw cap rates roughly equivalent to where they are today, depending on the asset, on the, um, asset grade in the two, three, 4%, let's say, or three, four, 5%. Um, and interest rates back then, if you recall, were five to 6% for commercial loans in most cases. So today, you know, we're seeing the three, four, 5% cap rates with interest rates in two to 3%. For the most part. So I thought that was really eye-opening. And the reasoning he gave behind that was pretty close to what you mentioned, Joe, as far as uh, the demand for multifamily coming from other different uh, investment types, as well as the spike in inflation that we've seen in recent years compared to that time period. So uh, I thought that was a, a good revelation and kind of confirmed the enthusiasm and the couple of year run, runway uh, at a minimum that we still see in this asset class. So we're, we're still actively pursuing and, and buying deals. So be curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, that's, a great, that's a great point. And she's right, uh, there isn't, I think when people think, oh, or you hear interest rates are gonna go up, you think, oh no, that means cap rates are gonna go up. And that's, and while interest rates are a very important part of in, uh, in investing in where cap rates will go, they're not the only part of what goes into cap rates. It's not the only factor, right? And if you, you know, if you want to do like a little bit, a little bit of homework, if you just put on a scatter plot the one-year change in um, the ten-year, ten-year uh, interest rate and the one-year uh, change in cap rates for multifamily or any asset class, you'd find that they're actually inversely related. Uh, and there's a very good reason for that, which is typically. Uh, you know, you would expect interest rates to somewhat move up as uh, as the economy does better um, to some degree, and you would expect that cap rates would come down, right? Now, certainly interest rates put upward pressure, uh, rising interest rates put upwards pressure on cap rates, but a strong economy means more investing, more dollars that are being put into 
uh, different types of assets. And uh, real, uh, commercial real estate certainly benefits from that. So yeah, to uh, Dr. Winneman's point, uh, it's hard to disagree with someone who knows so much, but he's absolutely right. It is, they're not, it's not the, the death knell for these kind of low cap rates. And it's, it's kind of why I'm pretty comfortable with that, you know, that flat cap rate projection, despite interest rates moving up. I just think that the spread comes in a little bit. Yeah. Yep. So in some of your alpha markets, Dallas, Austin, you know, we talked about the Raleigh, even for example, I mean, we've seen Phoenix unprecedented rent growth. I mean, even San Diego, you know, I mean, that's where we're at. I mean, it's, it's amazing. 15, 20%. I mean, this economy still has legs. I mean, how, how much more room do we still have to go? Like, what do you project that, you know, across the board? I mean, in some of those major cities that we just kind of talked about that we've been speaking about, do you see that as a, at least for 2022 sustainable mid teen rent growth? Maybe not mid teen. <laughs> you mean like, you know, uh, there was, this is a bit of a one-time, you know, mm-hmm. burst that you got. Uh, and you could, there's a few different explanations. You could talk about the decoupling of households as, as workers got more cash and they felt more comfortable moving out on their own. You can talk about, um, you know, this eviction moratorium kind of putting a cap on that negative uh, uh, or that additional space going on the market. Right. I don't think that that's probably affecting the lower end of the spectrum in terms of uh, par- uh, apartment quality, but still it, it does matter. It does filter through the entire, uh, you know, quality, uh, all the different qualities. Look, uh, I, I, we do expect that through 2022 that, you know, um, barring anything uh, unprecedented happening, we do expect that you'll still see strong growth and you'll still see str- strong growth, particularly in those Southern markets. I, I can't, I don't, I'm not entirely sure about, you know, that mid-teen growth that we, and, you know, higher in some cases that we saw right. in um, 2021, but we, we do expect another strong year. Uh, but that's going to come with some, you know, weakening economic prospects or economic uh, data. You know, we, we expect GDP, for example, to kind of move back into that pre-pandemic one to 3% growth, you know, trudging along. Uh, we expect consumption to kind of come back into a more normal you know, retail sales, for example, come back into a more normal uh, pace as opposed to the, uh, the the levels it is at now, you know, 20% above trend or something like that. Right. So it's going to come on the backdrop of some bad economic news, but uh, the difficulty in building multifamily right now and this housing shortage, and I know there's arguments about whether it's a short, it's, it's, it's certainly a shortage now, but whether it's a shortage long-term is a different story for 2022. Uh, it's going to help keep, you know, demand strong. Yeah. Uh, keep vacancies and, down. And that was one of the things I wanted to ask you, like in terms of the actual like shortage, I mean, is the, is the absorption of what's being built in some of these major markets actually keeping up with the, you know, the supply coming onto the market? I mean, what are you seeing there in terms of, because yeah, what's being built right now is primarily class A stuff. Am I, am I, am I correct in that? And so in terms of absorption rates, meaning the amount of people moving into what's being built on the market, you know, where are we at with that right now? And, and what do you foresee, you know, in, any changes there moving forward? Yeah. For, so for now, absolutely. It's, it's been keeping up, you know, we do have a decent amount of supply coming on. It's maybe not as much as builders would like to do. I know multiple uh, investors have expressed or developers have expressed frustration in trying to build it's just the materials cost, the labor problems, you know, trying to get, there's, you know, the regulations you have, there's a lot of things to get a multifamily uh, asset built and that's causing a lot of problems. There is a concern, you know, <laughs> building so much higher end quality assets 
you're not serving the full population. You're really serving a small subset of the population. And you're, you are forcing some of those, you know, one to three star typical renters into that five star, especially with home homes being as expensive as they are. Mm -hmm. Those homes being expensive could is likely helping the four and five star assets uh, as you know, other uh, home, otherwise home buyers are just having to rent for longer. But, you know, we don't have spectacular population growth. It's not, you know, going forward, if you're thinking really long term here, uh, it is something uh, that I think uh, resonates with me is I, I can't remember, there was an analyst that made a really good point, which is, yeah, maybe right now, we have a, a housing shortage, maybe in the next few years, and if depending on your investment horizon, that's maybe what you need. But at some point, you know, this population growth is going to be pretty flat. And if we keep building, that's going to be a problem going forward, because we can't grow our way out of that. In terms of just, I'd be curious, uh, any any markets, you know, what maybe what we refer to as kind of beta markets or secondary tertiary markets that are that are on your radar that are coming up more often, you know, with with a lot of this migration, uh, even because we're seeing, you know, rents in in Austin matching matching San Diego at times, or heck, my my wife from Midland, and they tell me the rents there. I'm like Midland, Texas, you know, two thousand yeah. dollar, two thousand bucks to live in a a one bed, you know, one and a half, one one and a half. I'm like that's insane. So I don't know. I'm I'm curious in any markets like that, man, on your radar that you've seen really begin to kind of boom um, and still still affordable in a sense. I'll still, after this year, still affordable is a kind of a tough ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we do have, a, we have a, we have a new analyst coming up from Richmond and he, he's moving up here and he asked me, Hey, is there a place close to work that uh, I can afford? I said, no, <laughs> no. Good, luck. <laughs> good luck. I'm sorry. It's just, it's so, it's so difficult to get it. I mean, I'm in Boston, which is a little different. If you, I mean, uh, if you go down South, I, you still, I, those Florida markets are doing quite well. I, I hear a lot about those. Those Texas markets still come up a lot. Atlanta, is, which is not really a secondary market at this point, comes up a lot. Atlanta's transaction volume beat out New York's hmm. last year. So Atlanta is really not a, a, a secondary market in my mind at hmm. this point. It's the problem. I will say the problem with some of these secondary and tertiary markets going forward, and this is more for institutional quality, is that uh, to the <laughs> to foreign investors, a lot of them, it's the jungle. They they know New York, San Francisco, right. and they're trying to become more familiar with these markets. Certainly, but uh, you do still need to worry about the how much capital is actually going to flow into those. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm still I'm still hearing those those Carolina markets, those Florida markets, and those Texas markets get hammered over and over and over again. Those are the, I mean that's where everybody's moving to. That's where uh, that's where most of the invest, uh, investor attention is uh, in terms of these major these major investors putting money in. It's uh, it's Phoenix to a certain degree, Salt Lake City. I've heard ups and downs, but I think there's been ups and downs about Salt Lake City for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a little bit of a hard market to get into. What are the data points that you are really tracking in 2022 that, you know, are really maybe impacting your investment decisions as a, as an investor? So the one I will, I'm going to be following very closely uh, is labor force. Hmm. So look, at the end of the day, this is going to be a problem going forward. If you think about like what's, hap what's happened in Japan the last 20 years, They've had a consistent labor shortage. They've had consistently high job openings. And if you, you look at the difference in the labor force for, let's say, the Northeast or uh, the Midwest uh, compared to the South and the West, the South and the West have basically recovered their labor force participation, or they're very, very close to doing so. And the, the, what's left is just basically uh, of their job shortage is basically unemployed. 
If you look at the Northeast and the Midwest, however, where we know people are really moving from, and I know West has California, but it's a little bit more mixed there. They have a pretty significant labor shortage problem, a labor force participation problem. And if we want to think about what, what markets are going to boom, maybe in the medium to long term, it's going to be ones that can leverage their labor force to, to grow. I mean, that's, you know, a lot of those tech companies are moving to Austin, are moving to Denver because they really like those areas or because their workers really like those areas. And to my point earlier, yeah, it takes a long time to build, but uh, to uh, kind of develop those really great agglomeration economies. But if you're looking for, you know, something like pure growth, those places that can attract new workers are going to be valuable. Uh, and right now we're seeing it just from a labor force participation uh, perspective, really in the South and the West. The South is basically, if, uh, if you take all the states in the South, the South has basically recovered its, uh, its employment from pre-pandemic, whereas, you know, the Northeast is still five or 6% below. Right. And not only that, you have policies here that really don't even uh, incentivize people to go back. I mean, I'm talking about California specifically. I mean, we mm-hmm. just had a massive strike for our public trash. And, you know, I mean, no one would pick up, no one was picking up the trash because <laughs> one, they don't have to go to work. They can sit at home, you know, and, but also, I mean, the, the, the working environment is so poor. So I think policy has a lot to do with, with that as well. Right. So um, that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still, it's still difficult to build. I mean, in, in, in Massachusetts, we now, uh, towns don't get state money if they, uh, uh, they, they block projects from being built there just in an effort to build more because yeah. nimbyism is such a problem. And I know it's a very big problem in, in some of those California markets. Just, we just need to build density uh, if you want to fix that housing shortage problem. I, I totally agree. Yeah. So uh, as Ellis mentioned, my team, we underwrite a couple deals a week at this point in, in, in depth. And we rely on CoStar reports is probably our primary data source to feed into our underwriting model. I think it'd be beneficial for our listeners to learn a little bit about how your team collects that data. Um, obviously things like current asking rents for a given property or sales pricing is kind of widely published publicly. Um, but things like that we, we pull from there are like occupancy rates or vacancy rates at a given time, um, NOI uh, rates. So you need to know expenses in order to calculate cap rates, things like that. How is your uh, team pulling in that data and ensuring that it's relatively accurate? Yeah, that's a great question. Without giving away any state secrets, uh, <laughs> um, we have a huge, really great research team that does a ton of work. They call, uh, they call people on either side of the deal. They, I, I know they they badger brokers whenever they possibly can on lease deals, for example. Uh, they they leverage you know marketing materials for asking rents, for example, whenever they can get their hands on it. There's a there's a whole system of uh, of researchers that really and uh, that look at like tenancy, what tenants are in that market, whenever they can. It's it re- it's really just boots on the ground at the end of the day. Uh, and then there's there's a system of verification between you and me. I understand that there are sometimes when the data you look at the data and you go, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and that's just w- the pure amount of data we're pulling in. And I understand that. Uh, we also get data for CMBS. Uh, you know, we, that's a new that's a new product that we've launched in the last year. That's really great, and that's directly from CMBS data we're pulling in. And that performance data, I think, is really interesting. Uh, I'm putting on my marketing hat now, uh, <laughs> sales hat. But yeah, it's boots on the ground essentially. At the end of the day, it's it's the great it's the great work of the uh, you know hundreds of researchers that we have that that do all that work that I get to sit on top of and play with. Effectively, I get to have fun with. Sure, sure makes sense. So those reports are usually on the submarket level, which we really like. So it's a very accurate drill down of a specific property that we're 
targeting. And I think there's 10 or 15 different sections that break down the uh, rent comps, sales comps, uh, market demographics, things like that. Are there any metrics within those reports that you think are kind of hidden gems or something that you would focus on uh, maybe even more so in 2022? I, I know you mentioned the labor rate and participation. Uh, is there anything else that comes to mind that would be that's kind of glossed over that would be relevant to, uh, let's say, multifamily underwriters? Yeah, I would uh, I would keep a very close, uh, and I believe it's, uh, this should be in one of, some of the reports is stabilized vacancy rate versus unstabilized. You know, some of these markets are getting a ton of uh, product put into them. Uh, I know for if you're an underwriter, you probably <laughs> you're well aware of that. Yep, but yep. Uh, um, you know, I would keep I would keep a close eye. I I really do like those those that CMBS data. Uh, I think it's really it's really interesting. It gives you you know performance data, give you expense data, all that kind of st- uh, all that interesting stuff. Uh, if you find if uh, some properties have just the full out report for 2018, 2019, 2020, for example, that sh- that gives you exactly what their expenses were. That's fantastic. We love that data. Uh, our, I know our clients love that data. So, yeah, that's a new one. I wasn't aware of that. That's that's really helpful, though. Appreciate that. Yeah, I, I would. You know, we're our uh, our CMBS team sits in Boston, and I they've they've done a ton of work. But I, I think it's it's really it's really come a, a long way, and it's done it's really great. Joe, I'm, I'm taking you, my marketing hat off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Joe, do you, I mean, w- w- uh, do you ever put out more info or kind of what you're seeing, man? Are you on Twitter? Like where do folks go to, I mean, you're just a wealth of knowledge, man. I would love, I would love to see you, uh, you know, put more things out there. Have you, have you considered tweeting more? What, I mean, do you, do you, you know, would, would CoStar oh. let you do that? What's up, man? CoStar might, CoStar might let me do that. Uh, I don't know if my fiance would. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm paid for, I'm paid for by CoStar. I put out, uh, research notes. I put out a few research notes per year. Uh, my clients have full access to me. Um, you know, any uh, between you know working hours, <laughs> but you know, they, uh, my clients have full access to any kind of research we're doing or questions. Uh, a lot of a lot of our best research questions comes from a client going, you know, I'm really interested in figuring this out, and you know, what develops from that is kind of where we get some of our our best work because mm. uh, it really gets to what people in the market are doing right now. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you, if you are interested, <laughs> can you, you to- explain that? Like what, what is your typical client? Who is your typical client and kind of what is the size of their firm typically that, uh, that you're working with? Sure. Yeah. So we, we service, uh, the coaster advisory services, so the, 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 the group that I work in, uh, typically, uh, services, uh, larger, uh, investors, uh, developers, uh, you know, uh, anybody who's really, uh, putting a ton of time into commercial real estate, you know, could be pension funds, any of that, um, and uh, typically, they're on. They are on the larger side. Uh, but we we would we would do any kind of uh, any kind of client that is, is wants to work with us. Um, certainly, uh, and the work we do is you know if you if you go for a full advisory relationship, it's essentially you get a client manager and you get access to the full team. We um, and we'll do we we won't give like we won't give away like all of our data certainly, but we will do all sorts of analysis. Anything that you really ask for, that's within reason. We are happy to do. And that's where we get, like, like I said, the best questions, the best, the best sort of uh, research we do is, is brought on a lot of times by clients asking really good pointed questions. Not, not unlike like a lot of these questions here are, you know, that makes you kind of think about something differently. That makes you kind of think about, uh, you know, markets in a different way. Are you, but, you know, a lot of people have dismissed prime urban or actually a lot of people have dismissed retail, for example, for so long does is retail has retail pricing kind of come back to a point that it's it's viable again or is mm-hmm. it interesting again 
And then that's a great question. Go, let's go dig into that. Where, uh, what's the best, uh, best way, man, for, I mean, is it to reach out to you? Uh, what, what's the kind of best contact? I mean, clearly, if you're in commercial, you, you know about CoStar, but for things like this, uh, what, what, what do you want us to link in the show? Yeah, uh, you can link, uh, uh, you can, we, have a, we have a website where you can see kind of some, some of our work, and I'll send that, to, send that over to you. Oh, man. Uh, but we have, uh, I would say, if you want to contact us and you have CoStar, you need CoStar to, uh, to, to get uh, advisory services. Uh, you can contact your salesperson. They'll, they'll link you right to us and they'll put you through the appropriate path. So if your account manager will let you, uh, will have all of that information for you ready to go. Joe, man, this was fun, dude. I, we got to have you back on to, to see how these predictions play out in the next six to eight months. So, uh, I'm going to be keep, keep following along with you too, man. So thanks for everything. And I really do enjoy your perspective. Anytime I kind of see your name pop up on the internet, I'm, I'm listening to it. So, uh, thanks for, for joining us and being part of the show. Yeah, thank you. I, um, uh, it was fun. I had a good time. All right, guys. We'll see you. See ya.